it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It's Monday, October 24th, 2022. A brand new week here on the broadcast. It's the Guy Benson Show. Thank you so much for tuning in and joining us. From the Fox News Bureau in Washington, D.C., I'm Guy Benson, political editor at townhall.com, a Fox News contributor. Catch me tonight on Special Report. I'm joining the panel with Brett Bayer and the crew. That'll be right around 6.45 p.m. Eastern time on Fox News Channel, so hope you'll tune in for that. I also hope, more immediately, you will stay tuned for today's show. Here is the lineup. Tiffany Smiley will be here coming up this hour. About half an hour from now, she's the U.S. Senate nominee for the Republicans in Washington state. She debated Patty Murray, her opponent, last night. We'll ask her all about how that went. Gordon Chang in our next hour talking about China and some very interesting, noteworthy things that have happened within the CCP just in the last few days. We will ask Gordon about that. Juan Williams joining us here in studio in our final hour. Maybe we'll get into some Halloween and some baseball talk, but I am mostly interested in his Overall thoughts on the election cycle, on inflation, on crime, on all the things that are really hammering his party, wants a Democrat. Is he expecting them to somehow pull off a win or is he resigned to a loss? We will get to some of that later on with Juan Williams. GuyBensonShow.com is our website here. As I mentioned, the podcast is free on demand every day. We always remind you of that. GuyBensonShow.com, the one-stop shop for everything you need related here on the program. Now, today I was faced with something of a dilemma because there are so many things I would like to talk about at the onset of the show. We are 15 days out from a very important midterm election. There are things happening across the electoral map that we could absolutely delve into and highlight. What I've decided to do, however, is open with an issue that I am confident that the Biden administration does not want us to talk about. Why am I so confident? Because on Friday night around 11 p.m. Eastern, some people probably already in bed at that point, some people perhaps including the producer of this show, several drinks deep at that point, the American people are not exactly tuned into the news at 11 p.m. Eastern time on a Friday night which is where the Friday news dump political strategy comes into play. It is not unusual, and it is absolutely bipartisan. It's a staple of our politics. If you want to put out some news that you would prefer to get lost in the shuffle, do it on a Friday afternoon. This one was buried even deeper, late into the night. And what was that news? A late-night dump from Team Biden on the border crisis. So I face the decision, do I talk about this and bury it deeper into the show because I want to start with other things related to the election? Or do I subvert exactly the cynical calculation set up here by Team Biden? 
which is to sort of try to pretend like by Monday afternoon or Monday, it's already old news. Oh, that, that came out on Friday, guy. I'm not falling for that. We're starting with it here. We are leading with this issue because they are trying to force people to avert their eyes from it. And we're not going to play along. We got the September numbers and then the fiscal year close numbers on the border crisis late Friday night, and they were terrible. My colleague at Town Hall tweeted about the late night drop close to 11 p.m. Eastern time. Customs and Border Patrol finally released, and this comes from, of course, the executive branch of the government, finally released the number of encounters at the border, southern border, in September, more than 227,000. And for all of fiscal year 2022, we have the final number, a little over 2.3 million apprehensions. And that, of course, does not include any of the gotaways, known or unknown. The estimate for known gotaways since Biden took office is a million. A million known gotaways. And the 2.3 million encounters last fiscal uh, fiscal year, that's just over the course of 12 months and does not include any of those gotaways. Our colleague Bill Malugin also tweeted late on Friday night about this. He said, breaking in a blatant Friday late night news dump. CBP has released the September border numbers. Here's the exact statistic. 227,547 migrant encounters at the southern border last month. That is the highest September in the history of the Department of Homeland Security. Fiscal year 22 ended with 2,378,944 encounters, also the highest ever and doesn't include gotaways. Malugin offered some more context Please listen to this. I know that there are people who only want to talk about this issue like, oh, it's some weird right wing obsession. And they only get dragooned into discussing it if they feel like there's an opportunity to score political points. And to attack Republicans. Or smear border frontline agents, which is what we also saw last year. This is an ongoing crisis at the border. It is completely unacceptable. And it is reaching historic levels that are just jaw-dropping. It is totally and completely unsustainable. So in 2019, September 2019, there was a bit of a surge at the southern border under Trump. Right? And it's like, okay, look at this. And the Trump people got their act together, put a number of policies in place that were quite successful. And got control, operational control, overwhelmingly of the southern border. Almost all of that was immediately broomed aside by the Biden people for political reasons. In September of 19, so three years ago, the surge that happened under Trump was just over 52,000 encounters at the border that month. And then September, fast forward to September of this year, it was nearly 228,000, more than quadruple. They won't even call it a crisis. They call it a challenge. They ignore questions about it. They talk about comprehensive reform and a path to citizenship, and they try to blame Republicans. 
That's their answer to this. You take a bad month from Trump where they were able to actually improve the policy and improve the outcomes. You quadruple it, and that's still less than where we are right now with the brand-new September numbers dribbling out on a Friday night with people asleep or out at the bar with friends. Now, here's another, another statistic that I want to bring to your attention that Malugin also highlighted. Last month alone, September 2022, there were 20 arrests of known or suspected terrorists from the FBI terror watch list at the southwest border. One month, 20 arrests of people on the terrorism watch list of the FBI. So this is an escalating phenomenon. All in. Fiscal year 2022 ends with 98 terror watch list arrests at the border, almost 100. And these are people that were caught, that we know of. And sometimes I feel like a broken record, and yet it needs to be said over and over again, especially because there's a conspiracy of silence about this in much of the rest of the press. Have you seen this reported anywhere? other than right-leaning media or Fox News from Bill Malugin. Like, maybe a tiny mention here or there, and then we just move right on. Oh, yeah, 228,000 people at the border, 2.3 million apprehensions, a million got away since Biden took office, 20 on the terrorist watch list. I guarantee you they don't mention that. 20 last month alone, 98 in fiscal year 2022. And you might say, well, this is fear-mongering. That's such a small number compared to the millions who entered the country, 98 out of millions. First of all, the millions is the problem. The denominator is the problem. The numerator is just one part of the problem in this equation. I'm using some fractions terminology here because I passed math in middle school, unlike apparently a lot of people in Washington, D.C., The gotaways issue is crucial to this because let's just say approximately in fiscal year 2022, there were roughly 600,000 known gotaways just in the year. 600K, it's probably a little bit more. People who go out of their way not to get caught, and there's, as I always talk about, an unknown universe of unknown gotaways who were not detected, right, or spotted or flagged on a sensor or something like that, or, you know, the drone saw them, but they weren't actually captured. They got in with no detection. That's a whole additional group. Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, we don't know. But people who are going to go out of their way to try to avoid getting caught, it would stand to reason that disproportionately there would be an outsized number of people who know that they are a danger to society or know that they would be captured, imprisoned, or deported because of their record, criminal or otherwise. So they would really bend over backwards to take an extra effort, pay the cartels even more, to get them across the border without being encountered. Remember, a lot of the people getting encountered, 228,000 or so last month alone, a lot of these folks deliberately turn themselves in as soon as they possibly can. 
They're like, hey, we're here. Please take us into custody. Process us, do the paperwork, and then release us. And in many cases, that's exactly what they get. Released into the country, bussed or flown or put on a train or wherever to a city of their choosing. And at some point down the line, they're supposed to show up for court. And in many cases, they never do. The word has gone out accurately, unfortunately, that you can come into the United States, say a few buzzwords, get processed, and you can stay indefinitely. And even if you commit certain crimes and get convicted of them as an illegal immigrant, they still won't deport you. That is the official policy on the books of the Biden administration. So that is a very large chunk of the people who are encountered. It makes sense that people who go out of their way not to get captured, not to get caught, they might be the ones, more of them might be in that gotaway category. Because they have more incentive. A lot of this is about behavior and incentives. They have more incentives not to get caught. So the 98 known FBI terror watch list suspects that were captured at the border this past year, 20 of them last month alone. 20. That is just a fraction of the problem because I would bet there were a lot more of them. And also people with criminal records, convicted felons. Who were in this other category, who were not encountered, who were not arrested, who were not detained. That's why this issue is not just about American sovereignty and about law and order and about having a country, a functional border. That is a requirement to have a successful, meaningful country. You have to enforce your laws. You have to enforce your borders or you don't really have a functional country. It's a point that President Trump made a lot, and he was right about that. Overwhelmingly, and I always point this out, people are trying to come here illegally because they want to live here. I can't blame them. It's the greatest country on earth. I'd want to be here, too. They don't have a right to be here if they come through illegally. And just claiming asylum does not mean that they have a bona fide claim. In the vast majority of the claims, actually, they are not justified. They are not backed up, and they find when that they are adjudicated to be unjustifiable asylum claims. They get rejected. The huge majority of them get rejected. So first and foremost, it's about law and order, national sovereignty, protecting a border, not from dangerous, scary people, just because that's what countries must do. You can't just come to this country because you want to. That's not how it works, or at least it's not how it should work. Enforce the law. That's number one. But we are naive and kidding ourselves if there is no national security or public safety component to this, as we always find ourselves saying, because the Border Patrol and others are catching convicted felons and suspected terrorists on a daily basis. Like almost every day in September, if you average it out, someone on the FBI terrorist watch list was caught at the southern border with untold numbers of people, dangerous people not caught. We shouldn't exaggerate or overplay those threats, but we shouldn't ignore them or underplay them either. What level of convicted felons or suspected terrorists entering the United States is acceptable to the people in charge? Is that a question that they're ever challenged with, that's ever put to them? And if they do get it, they just sort of this mealy-mouthed thing like, oh, it's not acceptable, but we're also compassionate and we have a system and the Republicans ruined it. We know what their talking points are. Their talking points are insulting when you look at the data. 
And obviously, intuitively, they know that. They understand it, too, which is why we got it around 11 p.m. on a Friday night, right before an election. They don't want us talking about this. They don't want us focusing on their failures. And so they tried this maneuver to have us move on. And that's why I wanted to commit to open with it on this show today. I'm having none of it. And as I say over and over again and will for the next 15 days, the only accountability that's going to happen, it's not going to come from within. They are allergic to accountability. The only accountability on this issue and many others will come at the ballot box 15 days from right now. That's it. That's the truth. That is the reality. Behave and plan accordingly. That's all I'll say. We are just getting started. New week on The Guy Benson Show. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. Another component of the border crisis, which I'm going to devote one more segment to, because the Biden people don't want us talking about it, hence the news dump on Friday night, is the drugs. We talked about people, right? And there was a record-setting number of deaths at the border. That was another number that Fox reported over the weekend. Griff Jenkins had that number, 856 deaths at the border of migrants. Record-setting. This is a deadly crisis. Then there's the systemic sexual assault, the human trafficking. It's awful. Plus then the drugs, fentanyl. More than 100,000 Americans died of drug overdoses last year. The vast majority linked to fentanyl. There was a story this weekend in the Wall Street Journal, very sad, about three high-achieving New Yorkers in New York City. One was a trading executive at Credit Suisse, 40 years old. One was an attorney, 26 years old. One was a social worker, 38 years old. All on a Wednesday had texted a DoorDash-style cocaine delivery service, obviously black market. They had cocaine delivered to them. They took this cocaine thinking it was just cocaine, but they all had illicit fentanyl mixed into their doses. All three of them died. And we're seeing this happening across the country. And it's an epidemic. And it is also linked back to the border crisis. Disrupting lives, stealing lives. Another reason why this needs to be brought under control. It's the Guy Benson Show. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Senator Murray stood with Joe Biden with the Inflation Reduction Act um, and, and said, this is going to help us. Don't be deceived by the name, because this isn't coming from me. This is coming from the CBO. It does nothing to combat inflation. In fact, it raises taxes on all of us. 87,000 IRS agents coming after our small business owners and hardworking Washington families. Do you know those making $25,000 or less? 
are five times more likely to be audited by the IRS? That's who I'm standing up and fighting for. Back here on the Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you along. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast always free. That was the voice of Tiffany Smiley at a debate last night between herself and the incumbent Democratic senator out in Washington state, Patty Murray. Tiffany Smiley is a veterans advocate and the Republican nominee in that race, which is too close for comfort for the Democrats. And Tiffany Smiley joins us again here on The Guy Benson Show. Welcome back. Yes, thanks. Thanks for having me back on. How did you feel about the debate overall? I, I felt really good. I felt like we played offense and we were able to deliver our remarks and hold Senator Murray accountable for her failed policies, her 30 years in government. And this is where we are with rising crime, our communities less safe. Um, a Washington state that is struggling with the rising cost of living and gas prices. Um, I, I feel like we brought the future and hope for all of Washington state. So let's talk about Senator Murray and her record. There is a story out today. Really, everyone's covering it, and we'll probably delve into it a bit more later on in the week on this show. But we've gotten what's known as the nation's report card for students. And to the surprise of no one, it's a disaster in the post-pandemic era. School closures obviously taking a toll. Reading quickly here from The Wall Street Journal, just the lead of the story, Quote, the nation's schools uh, recorded the largest drop in math scores ever this year, with fourth and eighth grade students in nearly every state showing significant declines, according to Education Department data released Monday. In the most sweeping analysis of test scores since the start of the pandemic, the 2022 National Assessment of Educational Progress, known as the nation's report card, also revealed a nationwide plunge in reading that wiped out three decades of gains. And, you know, Tiffany, you've been talking about education. You've been talking about school closures. Patty Murray was lockstep with the teachers unions keeping schools shuttered for a year and a half throughout much of Washington state, doing extra completely needless anti-scientific damage to kids. We are just starting to quantify that damage. And yet, what was it, a few weeks ago, she went on CNN, doubled down, and would not even entertain the idea of looking back, you know, even with hindsight and doing something differently. To me, that is a huge indictment, not only of her judgment, but of her awareness and the ability to move on from catastrophically bad decisions. Yes, I mean, you couldn't be more right. And we held her to account on that last night in the debate. Um, You could have asked any parent in Washington State, and they would tell you, that it was wrong what we did to our children and it has set them back with no plan to catch them up um the difference couldn't have been more clear last night when i shared my agenda for recovery and reform for education as a mom of three young boys um you know public school all three of my boys are in the public school system and to hear senator murray respond after me about how she funds the teachers union. And she said it was state and local government that handled that. And I reminded the audience and everyone in Washington state that she was the champion for mandates and the champion for school closures. In fact, she was nowhere to be found in Washington state. She wasn't leading from the front. She wasn't doing anything but poising, being poised to sign the American Rescue Plan that now put us into the greatest inflation we've seen in a generation. Um, This is on Senator Murray. 
and we need hope for our children for the future. I, I laid out my plan. I believe that the money needs to follow the children in their education system, that in Washington State, your zip code does not determine your destiny, um, that those dollars follow the child to have a choice, those, that parents have a choice in the children's education. And we truly need to reduce the stigma that college is for everyone. We need to ensure that our kids are also being exposed to trades at a very young age because there are multiple pathways to the American dream. We need to create and expand K-12 through STEM programs um, and certainly ban the federal government from ever forgiving student loans. So we have a lot of work to do. And, uh, again, this isn't a Democrat or Republican issue. This is an issue for parents and the education of our children in this country. Tiffany, when you made the case on crime, which I know is a top-tier issue for voters all across the country. I would imagine it's really top-tier in Washington state because of what's happened in Seattle and elsewhere. What is the response from Senator Murray? Because I saw that she did a press event or a little photo op a few weeks ago where she was in Seattle, like, oh, everything's fine. Look, I'm, I'm at this wonderful little small business, and, you know, that's all well and good. But while she was there that day, there were one or two emergency calls within blocks because of crimes in that exact neighborhood where she was doing her photo op in Seattle. Uh, when you confront her with this stuff, and part of that's going to be state and local officials and the, an approach to crime and uh, you know a, a lack thereof when it comes to enforcement, but also some of this comes from the top, uh, the federal level, what, what the Democratic Party is willing to indulge, certainly back in 2020. How does she react to those critiques? Yeah, you know, she really has no message and, and no plan. And it's truly a slap in the face to all Washingtonians who have dealt with the rising crime, have seen their businesses ravaged by crime and have experienced it themselves. Um, Senator Murray, you know, I'm like, she's a typical politician. I remind her that you can still be a leader. I'm going there to be a leader and stand up for all of Washington. She went on the Senate floor June of 2020. And she called for funds to be diverted from our police force. And then she disappeared and she went into hiding. And, and in fact, people all over Washington say, we didn't see her until she came out attacking you, Tiffany. Um, she has no plan. You know, I'm endorsed by the um, Washington Fraternal Order of Police. I'm endorsed by WACOP. Um, the police and cops in this, in this state are behind me all the way. Um, Senator Murray has no never talks about securing the border. She's for a porous open she voted against um, to help narcotics and opioids from coming across our border. She voted against that. Um, and then, look, you know, at the federal level, I know what I can do is be a leader um, and and disarm this dangerous rhetoric that Senator Murray continues to, to spew that there's no crime and, you know, divert funds from our police. On the federal level, I can ensure that our police have access to uh, – Five, uh, federal grant dollars for $5,000 retaining and recruiting bonuses. Um, our cops are understaffed here. I was, talked with a police officer in Tacoma just on Saturday, and he said he's down 45 police officers. So they're working overtime and uh, overworking, and um, they need our support. We need to get crime under control in this, in this state. Well, and a shrinking police force is also a big problem in Seattle, where crime is up, policing is down. I mean, that's like the worst possible combination and that is the handiwork of one-party rule in Washington state. The same party runs Washington, D.C. Both Washingtons run completely by Democrats, and I feel like a lot of voters don't feel like it's working out terribly well for them. One of the ways that I see 
Senator Murray attacking you is she is suggesting that you, Tiffany Smiley, are a threat to democracy itself. This is a frequent attack line out there on the campaign trail. And there are some Republican candidates, a few out there, and also Democratic candidates who've denied elections in Georgia, for example, who I think this might be a more potent critique of. But in your case, it doesn't seem to really fit. She is insinuating, she is suggesting, she is amplifying an attack line that you're an election denier. But I know you were on our affiliate a few weeks ago, KTTH, out in Seattle with our friend Jason Rance. He wanted to put this issue again to bed. He asked you a straightforward question. Here's what that exchange was like in Cut 30, just to remind people. So for the record, Tiffany Smiley, do you think our last election for Joe Biden, was it legitimate? Yes. Yes, it was legitimate. Joe Biden is our president. Legitimate election. Joe Biden won. That's your position. Where is she coming from with this election denial suggestion about you? Yeah, I, I have no idea. It's just a typical D.C. talking point shows, again, how completely out of touch she is. And I called her out on it um, in the debate last night. And I said, you know, my husband lost his eyesight fighting for democracy. And our family lives with that sacrifice every single day. It's certainly why we are in this fight to put country over party. And I said, so, Senator Murray, why don't you say it right here in front of everyone that I am that me and my family are not a threat to democracy or disembow your campaign's dangerous rhetoric that has spent millions of dollars to paint me as someone I am not. It further divides our country and it further divides the state. I am in this race to unify because this is not about politics. This is about the United States of America. What did she say? She really didn't have a good answer. She went back to saying, I, I denied the election, <laughs> changed my website. I reminded her that it is clearly on my website that we need to ensure that our elections are safe, that there's confidence in, in the election system. That's on both sides right. of the aisle. Um, she did look at me and say, I want to be clear to me, you and your family like, are not a threat to democracy. But then you have to ask the question, then why have you spent millions and millions of dollars to paint mm-hmm. us? to paint me specifically as that. Well, I think we know why, right? She woke up a few months ago and said, okay, I've got a serious challenger. This might be a bad year. I voted for all of this stuff that's really ticking off a lot of voters. We need to carpet bomb Tiffany Smiley before she even becomes the Republican nominee. They started attacking you before you were the nominee. They have spent millions of dollars against you. We're now here in the last 15-day sprint to the finish, Tiffany, And look, there's probably a lot of people listening across our audience, all across the country, around the world even, who are saying she sounds really good. She sounds really smart. She sounds like she'd be a huge upgrade from Patty Murray. But, man, that is such a blue state. Seattle and the surrounding area is such a dominant political force out there in Washington. She might do well, but maybe not well enough. What's your response to that? Some of the skepticism, which I think is understandable, given the nature of your state. How do you win this? What is your roadmap to actually winning a little over two weeks from now? Yes, we're going to um, I'm hitting 46 different cities across Washington state. And in fact, in Seattle, I was at an event on Saturday talking with independent voters and a few Democrats um, who came up to me and said that this is the first time that they will have ever voted for a Republican. Um, so our message is spreading. Um, we are gaining voters. Patty Murray's not gaining any voters. <laughs> we are peeling off 
from her and sharing our message of turning crisis into hope for all of Washington. This is exactly why we will win. If anyone watched the debate last night, I think the contrast is clear. This isn't Democrat or Republican. This is about Washington state. This is about getting our state back on track and having actual leadership that delivers results. That's what's on the ballot. This is exactly why we will win. There are polls that have us neck and neck tied. We will push through to victory all the way through the finish line. Senator Murray knows it as well. You know, her luck has run out. Tiffany Smiley is U.S. Senate candidate and the Republican nominee in that race out in Washington state, the Pacific Northwest. Her opponent has been in D.C. for decades. Patty Murray is part of Democratic leadership. She doesn't really lead on very much. She's a very reliable vote for their entire agenda. And Tiffany Smiley has put a scare into Patty Murray and her campaign, and we'll see if they can come over the top and win this thing. And uh, look, if, if the wave gets substantial enough, I don't put it past Tiffany Smiley, who's run an excellent campaign, to win. And the polls are close, far closer than the Democrats want. And, Tiffany, we just really appreciate your time. Great job last night. And hopefully we'll get to check back in with you after the election as a senator-elect. That would be fantastic. How about that? I I look forward to it. And anyone can join us at smileyforwashington.com, all spelled out. Join us in this fight to get our country back on the right track. Tiffany Smiley out in Washington State, our guest here on The Guy Benson Show. We will step aside. We'll be right back after this. The Guy Benson Show. More next. We are back here on The Guy Benson Show. I know we focus on American politics very closely on this program, as we should. I tend to also keep tabs on U.K. politics, and it has been wild over there. We would be talking a lot more about it if not for our election cycle here. Just craziness. I'll be doing the show from London after our election mid-November. I'm giving a speech over there about our election. I want to ask them, what the hell's happening to you? So Boris Johnson, the prime minister, was forced out months ago over parties during COVID at Number 10 Downing Street and cover-up or dishonesty about all of that. That was a scandal. And... He was eventually deposed. It was a slow bleed, but then they they threw him overboard. It is just bloodless British politics sometimes. It's like, okay, you're our guy. Never mind. You're out. So then Liz Truss became the Conservative Party leader. There was a whole process, and she was elected, and therefore she became prime minister. She lasted, what, 44 days, a month and a half? A complete shambles where I think she ran away from some of her proposals far too quickly, and they all started wetting themselves, and, oh, we can't do this, and, no, forgive us, we're really not this conservative, and it was just a total mess. And people started squealing for her head politically, and they got it. She's the shortest-serving prime minister in the history of the country. What a distinction. 44 days, and now there's going to be a new one, And we know who that now man is going to be, Rishi Sunak, poised to become the next prime minister. He came in second in the leadership election to Liz Truss, who's now out. He's the former chancellor of the exchequer in the Boris Johnson cabinet. He's 42 years old, young guy. He also is the grandson of Indian immigrants. He's the first person of color that will ever become Prime Minister of the U.K. 
It's interesting. You're not seeing a lot about that from the left. I'm scrolling through some of the social media of the British left and even some Americans here who follow politics, and they love to talk about representation and diversity and people of color and all these things and all, you know, all this stuff is so important. And look at the march toward progress and visibility matters and all of that. They are describing him almost uniformly as one of the richest people. I believe the richest person to ever become prime minister. Rich is the word they keep using. Like, that's bad. Oh, how dare he be successful? But I just think it's somewhat telling that they are not coming out of the gates with history in the making. This grandson of immigrants and a person of color, he's Hindu. Look at what this means for Britain. No, they're like, look at this rich Tory scum. You'd be getting all the hosannas and the diversity spiel if he were a member of the Labor Party, which is their version of the Democratic Party. Right? It's just how it goes. It's how it goes. So he's got quite a, a political challenge, let's say, on his hands as he comes into office. It's not official yet, but Boris was maybe going to try to come back. It made no sense to me. I kind of like Boris, but he was already thrown out under a previous scandal. Why would he come right back? So now it's Rishi Sunak who tries to, if I'm saying the last name, Rishi Sunak, I might be mispronouncing the last name and the emphasis on syllables, but he will try to put the pieces back together within the Tory party, the conservative party. He's got, I think, well over a year to do it before the next scheduled general election. The Tories are really just struggling, getting clobbered in the polls right now because of their dysfunction, and we'll see if he can get the party back in fighting shape the third prime minister in a matter of a few months remarkable stuff across the pond another hour coming up here live from the most powerful city in the world unconventional talk from a fresh unconventional conservative guy benson show It's a brand new hour on The Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you listening every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern. That's when we air live. If you can't listen then, we recommend the podcast. Podcast totally free on demand every day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be on special report tonight with Brett Baer. I think Mara Lyason and Ben Dominich will be joining me. So looking forward to that around 645-ish Eastern time. That's on Fox News Channel. So feel free to tune in or to set your DVRs. Fox News alert. The Dow up today, 417 points, off-session highs, but still significantly in the green, closing out the day at 31,499. Well, President Biden is a little bit more out there now giving some more interviews, saying some more things. I guess they're unleashing Joe, dark Brandon, to help the Democrats here in the final stretch of this campaign. Is he really helpful, though? I guess we'll find out. His job approval rating is weak. People feel like he is detached from the issues that they care about the most. In one interview that he gave, he was boasting about the student loan cancellation scheme, which is, in my view, not legal. It is an abuse of executive power. I think it will probably get 
shot down uh, under legal review. That's my guess. It should be. It was just brazen what he did. It's also deeply unfair to the vast majority of Americans who don't hold student loan debt being forced to pay for other people's decisions, including disproportionately wealthier, higher earning potential individuals. It's crazy. It's unfair. It's also on top of all of that inflationary, both broadly speaking in the immediate term. And also it will continue to balloon the cost of higher education. It doesn't arrest that trajectory. It makes it worse. It exacerbates the problem. It is an absolutely horrible policy, but Biden was bragging about it in this interview. And this is a quick snippet. I won't play you the whole answer, but just trust me, we have the full answer as well. This is not taken out of context. He is talking about the student debt forgiveness scheme that he implemented. And here's what he said about it in Cut 21. Secondly, if you don't have one of those loans, you just get 10000 written off. It's passed. I got it passed by a vote or two. He just casually talks about, oh, yeah, 10000 bucks written off. It's, a, it's just a write-off. It's like from S. Creek. It's just a write-off. No, it's someone else, i.e. taxpayers and borrowed money, paying for the debts that people incurred. That's what it is in a brazen attempt, shameless, to buy votes from a very specific fraction and subset of Americans at the expense of everyone else, literally. But notice what he said there at the very end of that very short clip. He said, it's passed. I got it passed by a vote or two. I would love to see that roll call, Mr. President. Who were the deciding votes, Mr. President? There was no vote on this. What the hell is he talking about? This would be a terrible policy if it had been passed by Congress. It is a terrible policy and illegal because it wasn't passed by Congress. They've used some absolutely cockamamie legal explanation or justification to say, oh, something that was passed about the war on terror gives us the authority to forgive a bunch of these loans for Large swaths of bar- of borrowers. He did it on his own. He just announced it with a magic lawless wand with all of our tax dollars. There was no vote. It would not have passed in Congress. There have been some Democrats in swing states and battleground areas who have distanced themselves from this policy. And apparently the president of the United States believes or misremembers that there was a vote on this, and it's kind of specific. He said, oh, it's passed. I got it. I got it passed by a vote or two. Was it like a vote among his advisors in the Oval Office? Because there was no congressional vote on this. So either he's lying about how this thing came into existence, how this thing came to be, or he is confused and disoriented. It's one or the other. Speaking of confused or disoriented, there was a clip that went everywhere over the weekend as well. Biden did an interview with a very friendly interviewer on MSNBC. And the question came up about 2024. Is he going to run? And he gave his typical answer. I haven't made a formal decision. I intend to run. That's my intention. It's the same thing he's been saying here for a while. Then there was a follow up from the interviewer that seemed to maybe trip Biden up a little bit. He was silent. 
Some people said it looked like he was zoned out and maybe falling asleep. It got a little bit awkward. Just listen to Cut 24. I have not made that formal decision, but it's my intention. My intention to run again. And we have time to make that decision. Uh, Dr. Biden is for it. Mr. President. Oh, Dr. Biden thinks that uh, my wife thinks that uh, that I uh, that, that we're that we're doing something very important. All right. So he says he hasn't made the formal decision. It's his, his intention to run. I keep feeling like he's probably not going to run. You never know. Follow up from Jonathan Capehart. Dr. Biden for it, talking about Dr. Jill Biden, the first lady. Is she for it? There's this awkward pause. It's so awkward and lasts so long that the interviewer cuts back in, Mr. President, like, are you still there? Are you still with us? This is a face-to-face interview, by the way. Hello, Mr. President. And then Biden was just about to say something. Then he goes, oh, oh. Again, it's just a very awkward exchange. Then you get the answer. Dr. Biden thinks, my wife thinks that uh, ooh, er, eh, 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 we're doing something very important. Now, I saw a lot of people on the right sharing this clip eagerly, retweeting it, putting it on their feeds. Did Sleepy Joe just fall asleep in the middle of an interview? Did he sort of veg out mid-interview to the point that he had to be prodded? Mr. President, I actually have a different take on this. I don't think he was falling asleep. I don't think he was prepared for this follow-up question. He knew the memorized answer, what he says about, are you running in 2024? Then I think this was meant to be a friendly little question. What about the first lady? What does she think? Dr. Biden. My strong suspicion is that whether Joe Biden runs again in 2024 is a point of contention within the marriage. This is just purely a guess, or at least within the family. Whether she's given him an ultimatum, whether she's not on board or some people are less on board, there is something, I think, happening behind the scenes with some disagreements about 2024 within the Biden family. This is my guess. And Biden did not know how to answer that question. So he was sitting there thinking, oh, damn, what do I say? And he finally landed on. She thinks we're doing something very important, which is very much not an answer to that question if she's on board for 2024. I think there's something happening between the two of them. It's a sensitive subject. And he was trying to process what he could say without making that obvious. But because he did what he did, to me, it was at least plausible that she's not on board, given the response. I don't think he was asleep. I think he was trying to formulate a response to a question he wasn't expecting. We'll be right back. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. I mentioned last week that there were four consecutive public polls that I had seen that showed Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, leading Charlie Crist in his reelection bid by 10 or more points. Three of the polls had him up by 10, one up 11. So earlier I saw a bunch of people sharing a poll out of Florida and I was sort of confused. And I guess my brain, it wasn't clicking yet. Why are people sharing this? Because it showed DeSantis up seven. I was like, okay, sounds about right. Ten or 11 seems like a lot. It's plausible, I suppose. 
Seven seems about right, but it's not as impressive, at least as the polling goes, as some of the other ones that I just mentioned. So why is everyone talking about this? Then I went back and read these tweets and these graphics and the headlines a little bit more carefully. It was the Mason-Dixon poll that has DeSantis up seven points in Florida among Hispanics specifically. That was not his top line number overall in the state. It was his lead among Hispanics in a new poll down there in Florida. Now that will get your attention. Because if DeSantis can win Hispanics outright, let alone by seven points, he will win handily, easily statewide. Based on the exit polling four years ago, DeSantis lost Hispanics by about 10 points. So if he can gain double-digit ground in terms of percentages and have that swing in his favor, I mean, that's a big deal. Let's talk about the write-up from NBC. They must have been so depressed writing about this poll. The NBC story says, overall, DeSantis leads Chris by 51 to 44 among Hispanic voters. 56% of Hispanics in Florida approve of the job the governor is doing. He's plus 15 on job performance. Again, just among Hispanics in the state per a survey conducted by Mason Dixon. Here's a detail that I love from the story. They asked people about the Martha's Vineyard stunt, which was a stunt, a successful one, putting illegal immigrants on the plane, flying them to Martha's Vineyard. NBC tries to frame it in the most negative way they possibly can. Here's how they describe it. The Martha's Vineyard flight resulted in widespread condemnation, lawsuits, questions about the contract, and a Texas criminal investigation over whether the migrants were criminally misled. That is the most negative spin you can possibly put on that. And yet, quote, amid the controversy, Florida Hispanics side with the governor on the Martha's Vineyard flight, with 50% in favor and just 43% opposed to the relocation. Independents joined Republicans in lending majority support to the governor on this issue. Now, this is my favorite line from the story. Support for DeSantis's migrant relocation, the Martha's Vineyard thing, was strongest among Hispanic immigrants. Those born outside of the United States favor the policy by 11 points. So the types of people that I think the media thought would be really angry about what DeSantis did, Hispanic immigrants to Florida, were in fact supportive of what the government did by double digits. People who came to this country overwhelmingly the right way, legally, believe it or not, aren't a big fan of uncontrolled illegal immigration and seem to support the governor drawing attention to the problem. I love the fact that people must have looked at those crosstabs to write up this story and realize, oh, wow, immigrants were most in favor of what he did within this subsample of the poll. (laughs) That's got to hurt. With all the negativity, the drumbeat of criticism, this the line that I read you, widespread condemnation, a Texas criminal investigation by like some sheriff somewhere in a blue county, I believe. The media really thought this was their chance to attack DeSantis again and Greg Abbott and Doug Ducey 
They only want to talk about the border crisis in the context of attacking the Border Patrol guys with the smear on the whipping or if they can portray Republicans as cruel and heartless. Well, they fell for it. They took the bait and it just didn't go the way they expected it to go, as we predicted here. Oh, here's another thing from this story at NBC. DeSantis has run 10 times more TV ads in Spanish than Charlie Crist has. So DeSantis has built up a huge war chest. He is massively outspending Crist across the board and also outspending him 10 to 1 on TV in Spanish language spots. The story reveals that what DeSantis is spending his money on are commercials in the Spanish language about keeping schools open and businesses open during the pandemic. That leadership. And, of course, those are very strong issues for him, especially on schools. He was exactly right about that, as some data out just today underscores. We'll probably get to that on tomorrow's show. The ongoing harms of school closures coming into sharper focus. DeSantis was against that on the side of science. He's touting that in English language ads and in Spanish language ads. Meanwhile, Chris, who's only running one ad in Spanish, at least so far, one ad is what his campaign has been able to air. And what is that lone Spanish language ad about? Well, it is touting and highlighting Chris's running mate, Carla Hernandez Matz, who is a teacher's union boss, the lieutenant governor nominee for Charlie Chris, a teacher's union boss in Miami-Dade County who fought to keep the schools closed. Thank God she lost and she failed and DeSantis prevailed on behalf of kids and science, but she tried to keep schools closed. She hired a hearse as part of a big protest. That's who Charlie Chris has put on his ticket. He's running one ad featuring her in the Spanish language, whereas DeSantis is using his Spanish TV ads to talk about schools being open and businesses and jobs being saved. What a contrast. I suspect that contrast will be on full display this evening in the one and only debate in this race. DeSantis versus Chris tonight, and we will likely bring you some of that sound tomorrow here on the show. One more quick note out of Florida, also from NBC News, quote, Democrats are fretting over Republican Governor Ron DeSantis' popularity among Latinos saying they are boosting his chances of becoming the first Republican governor in 20 years to win traditionally blue Miami-Dade County. This is a 70% Hispanic county in South Florida. And DeSantis is in a decent position to potentially win that county, which no Republican has done since 2002 and Jeb Bush. Hillary Clinton, for comparison, won Miami-Dade by 30 points. In 2016, that number came way down for Biden, although Biden still won it by seven. And now it looks like DeSantis, maybe Rubio could go in and win Miami-Dade. If that happens, then it's just, you know, a political bloodbath statewide, which very well might be the case. And oh, by the way, since I mentioned Governor Abbott in Texas just briefly in the context of the border crisis, two new polls out in the last day. He's up 10 in one and up nine in the other. So it looks like in another major, diverse, red-tinted state, Republicans are doing well and outperforming among Hispanics 
this probably keeps Democrats up at night as they look ahead to the future. They're sending Biden down to Miami-Dade in Florida to campaign for Christ early next month. Is that going to help? Is he an asset? Is that going to stop the bleeding or make it worse for the Democrats down there? I guess we'll find out. I have a few more comments related to Governor DeSantis, a different controversy, perhaps with an eye toward 2024. Let's get to that after this break on The Guy Benson Show. We're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. We're back. It's the Guy Benson Show halfway through today's program. Thanks for listening. GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website, our online home. All sorts of content there, including our free podcast that's every day on demand. Gordon Chang coming up later this hour on China and what happened in Beijing in the last few days. And then also in the next hour, Juan Williams will be here in studio talking about the midterm elections and more I would imagine he and I may not see eye to eye on everything. That's okay. We'll have that conversation coming up in the next hour. We were just talking about Florida and Governor Ron DeSantis in a different context. I want to talk about him and broaden it out a little bit in a different context here. This annoyed me. And on Friday's show, we touched on it ever so briefly with Joe O'Day, who's the Republican nominee for Senate in Colorado. Now, that's a state that Joe Biden won handily in 2020. It is a blue state. Occasionally, Republicans can pull a rabbit out of a hat there, basically under perfect circumstances. Cory Gardner won the Senate seat, for example, in a huge Republican year of 2014. But overall, that state has gotten bluer and bluer over the last decade or two. So it's a very tough spot for any Republican to be running statewide including O'Day, who I think is running a very smart, good campaign. Successful businessman. He's moderate on some of the issues that align with the state. He's focused on the right things. And he's going hard after Michael Bennett, who's the incumbent Democrat out there, who I've described multiple times as a non-entity. He's just kind of, you know, an empty suit politically who votes with his party on every single major issue. He is a generic Democrat, right? You just sort of Find a generic Democratic senator, and he looks like Michael Bennett, or he looks like Maggie Hassan in New Hampshire, or Catherine Cortez Masto in Nevada, or for that matter, Mark Kelly in Arizona. These are just march along to the drum of Chuck Schumer and Joe Biden, reflexive Democrats. And that's how they've chosen to operate and how they've chosen to represent their states, and we'll see if people want to make any changes in some of those places. And there's other races as well that are very much on the front burner. I would say that Colorado isn't on the back burner. It's sort of on a middle burner, if you will, where in a big enough wave scenario or setting, Joe O'Day could pull off the upset and beat Bennett, who doesn't really have much of a brand of his own in the state because he hasn't really done very much of anything in the U.S. Senate aside from voting exactly the way that the leadership always tells him to vote. That's what he does. And I'm not predicting an O'Day victory, but I do think that he would, under the right circumstances, have an opportunity potentially to win. Even though clearly he's the underdog. 
And I asked O'Day, as our guest on the show last week, for his reaction to President Trump, former president of the United States, you might have heard of him, attacking O'Day recently, effectively telling MAGA world to cut O'Day loose. He's not one of us. He's bad because O'Day had distanced himself from Trump in a deep blue state, right? In order for a Republican to win in some places, you can't be a full-blown MAGA person. You can't, right? We're going to see that tested in Pennsylvania in the governor's race, in Massachusetts and Maryland in the governor's races, right? Sometimes you need candidates who are going to modulate differently and talk differently about Trump in a way that isn't just obsequious and slavish. That's what O'Day has done, I think, by necessity, And he's trying to kind of toe a line that Glenn Youngkin did, not alienating the MAGA crowd, but also not throwing in his lot completely with them at the expense of independent voters and moderates. It's a tough balance to strike. Colorado's even bluer than Virginia. So O'Day's been trying to do it. He is not over the top praising Trump. He said he shouldn't run again for president, in his opinion. He said a few different things. Trump, who makes everything about himself, decided that these were crimes against Trump that were unforgivable. So put out a statement with a lot of exclamation points and the whole thing that he always does, effectively, effectively endorsing Michael Bennett by telling Republicans and Trump supporters to walk away from Joe O'Day, which is the way that you get Bennett reelected. I thought that was a very foolish thing from President Trump. Selfish, petty, foolish, not good for the party, not good for the country, maybe just satisfying on some personal ego-related level for Trump, but that's about it. And I have very little interest in that. I have interest in winning and advancing the football from a conservative perspective and making it easier for someone like Michael Bennett, even easier for him to win re-election in a place like Colorado, does not advance the goals at all, as far as I'm concerned. Ron DeSantis, coming back to him, the governor of Florida, he looks at that race differently. It was reported by David Drucker in the Washington Examiner that DeSantis is helping out the O'Day campaign. He's recorded some robocalls to try to get Republicans to turn out and vote for Joe O'Day in Colorado. This is team politics, right? Team player politics. With DeSantis, I'm sure disagreeing with Joe O'Day on a handful of issues. They have a different approach, a different style. But DeSantis seems to look at that race and determine, as I do, there's a no-brainer. In terms of the choice, would you rather have Joe O'Day or Michael Bennett? And the answer, at least from my perspective, is obviously you'd rather have Joe O'Day in that seat, if possible. Even if he said a few things, distancing himself or arm's length from Trump, that is not worthy of writing someone off, especially if it redounds to the benefit of Democrats to help them hang on to a seat that might be marginally competitive. So DeSantis has come in to help O'Day with robocalls and that sort of thing. Trump has done the opposite, trashing the Republican against a Democrat in that race. And then Trump reacted to the story of DeSantis helping O'Day, in all caps on one of his truth social posts, calling it a big mistake, exclamation point. 
See, I don't really feel, and maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm naive. I don't really feel like a lot of Republican voters or conservatives and even Trump supporters, Trump voters in 2016, Trump voters in 2020, view Ron DeSantis helping a fellow Republican try to beat a Democrat in an important swing, in an important seat, as a big mistake. The big mistake seems to be attacking and running down Republicans who aren't sufficiently, personally, perfectly loyal, who don't hit the threshold of sycophancy that Trump demands. And if that ends up helping the Democrats win, well, then so be it, because it's all about Trump. That is the Trump mentality. And I just don't think a lot of Republicans share it, even people who like Trump and voted for him twice. Job number one needs to be winning the midterm elections from a right-leaning perspective. There's a lot at stake right now in front of us in 15 days. DeSantis here is keeping the eye on that ball. Trump is looking ahead. And since he's doing so, I will as well just for the moment. Because after the midterm elections, everyone's going to shift ahead to 2024 And Republicans need to decide if they want someone with Trump's me first mentality. He calls it America first. It's really Trump first. If they want someone with all that baggage and all of that myopia and egocentrism to once again lead the party, not at all in a teamwork kind of way, or someone who's a proven winner, someone who I suspect will outperform Trump in a key state like Florida, and someone who actually seems more interested in helping the party and advance the movement than settling personal scores that matter very little to anyone else. That might be the choice ahead of us. And to me, just to put my cards on the table, as I will repeatedly, I would guess, in the future, that isn't a tough call for me. But perhaps that's more of a discussion for a later date. Task one is a few weeks away. The Guy Benson Show is back after this short break. Gordon Chang discussing China, some significant developments over there. We'll get to that next. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. It's the Guy Benson Show. We're back. Thank you for tuning in. Joining us now is Gordon Chang, author of The Coming Collapse of China. And Gordon, it's good to have you back here on the show. Thank you so much, Guy. I want to just start with your reflections on Xi Jinping, the dictator in China, the Communist Party leader, now claiming and entering his third term as the authoritarian leader of that country. Just his legacy so far, as you read it, and what this new term means. His legacy so far has been a very troubled one because he's the author of domestic policies that have obviously failed. He has no solutions for them. And we know that because from his work report that opened up the 20th National Congress a week ago, what we heard was essentially silence about the issues that matter to the Chinese people. But we have also seen the other part of the legacy, which is a much more assertive, belligerent, provocative attitudes towards neighbors and towards the United States. This is a China that the world does not want to see. And so we really are now seeing more realistically um, a China that everybody abhors. And yet it seems like he is consolidating his power and will very much rule there for quite some time, if not for the rest of his life. It's hard to sort of see any inklings of any kind of uprising against him. 
And therefore, it seems like this is someone that the world needs to be prepared to deal with for years, if not decades. Yes, or is that too pessimistic? um, Yes, we have to deal with him, um, and we're not, because we know that he's preparing Chinese society for war, not just the military, but China's civilians. And uh, we see in the United States and other countries a failure. And I think it's almost a determined failure not to see what's going on inside China. Um, Yes, Xi Jinping has consolidated power. Um, He's eliminated all opposition. His loyalists now control um, the, the Politburo Standing Committee of the Communist Party. But China is volatile. And this means that, yes, while he's in control now, almost total control, Um, Anything can happen. We have seen a lot of discontent in the Chinese people. Um, They don't like the zero COVID policies. They are really upset about losing much of their net worth because of the plunging property prices. So this could be a society that takes us by surprise, as many other societies have when they've overthrown um, leaders. And by the way, Guy, I would actually call China now totalitarian, and clearly that is Xi Jinping's um, intention. And he's very long, far down the path of making China a totalitarian society. I'm sure, Gordon, that you saw the video clip that went viral of the Communist Party meeting in Beijing, where a former leader of the country was sort of abruptly manhandled by security and escorted out of the gathering He briefly stopped to talk to Xi Jinping, sort of importuning him on something, and Chairman Xi seemed rather dismissive, and off he went. What's the significance of what we saw? It was a creepy clip, as is so often the case with totalitarianism. You can't imagine that he's off to a happier place right now or what's gone on there, but what's your interpretation and reading on that exchange and that confrontation? Uh, Xi Jinping wanted to humiliate Hu Jintao, his immediate predecessor. And there are rumors that are unconfirmed, but there are rumors that Hu Jintao's relatives are actually being rounded up as well, though I suspect that's not the case. But what we have seen, though, is although Xi Jinping had total control of the Chinese political system, and he actually knew that, he went out and did this. He did this purposefully in front of the cameras, which means that he wanted to intimidate the Chinese people. And he also wanted to intimidate the United States and others. And we do have a president who is easily intimidated by the Chinese political system and by Xi Jinping himself. What Xi Jinping did by humiliating Hu Jintao is to flout uh, deeply held cultural norms of respect for elders. Of course, it also um, flouted norms in the Communist Party. Xi Jinping has deinstitutionalized the party guy which means that he has now become the one-man ruler. And we know that one-man rulers of militant regimes always end up uh, in in bad places. So this is something that we've got to be concerned about because China's problems are about to become our problems. You said that part of what he was doing there was trying to humiliate his predecessor. How would that play? Would it even penetrate with the Chinese people? I heard that they were censoring any mention of it, any video of it within their own borders. And if it's not really for a domestic audience, you said it might be meant to at least partially intimidate the U.S., why would the U.S. feel intimidated by one communist leader humiliating and perhaps cracking down on another one? 
because it would show that Xi Jinping is willing to break any sort of norms, any sort of uh, personal behavior, um, is extremely willful. And indeed, we've seen President Biden be intimidated by another willful leader, uh, Vladimir Putin. So I think probably Xi Jinping thinks he could also get his way with the United States. And yes, um, social media sites in China have been scrubbed of references to Hu Jintao. Um, but the Chinese people know what's happened, um, especially in a society where rumors um, really um, take off when there's an absence of information. Xi Jinping will know that. He knows that his message has gotten through to the Chinese people. And that's exactly what he wants to do, because as we've seen over his 10 years of rule in China, his preferred method of diplomacy is to intimidate others. And what we saw on Saturday with Hu Jintao was an intimidation maneuver. Gordon, you and I have spoken multiple times about Taiwan. There are different schools of thought about what will happen there, what the Chinese government, the CCP, might have in mind, and a timeline on potential hostilities or an invasion. A lot of it's speculation at this stage and conjecture. Where's your thinking on the Taiwan question and what China has in mind, what the designs are, and when? Xi Jinping has made it clear that uh, the People's Republic of China will annex Taiwan during his rule. Um, So the timeline has been shortened. Uh, I don't know exactly when it will occur, but I do know that uh, Xi Jinping is uh, building up the Chinese military, the fastest militarization since the Second World War. And as mentioned, he's mobilizing the Chinese people for war. So we have to assume that it can happen at any time. Um, We have a Pentagon, we have a political establishment that, at least up until last week, was entirely oblivious to um, the Chinese. And they were talking about war, if it would occur, no earlier than a half decade from now, probably next decade. I think Xi Jinping has vastly, has substantially accelerated that time frame. Gordon Chang is author of the book, The Coming Collapse of China. This is his wheelhouse his area of expertise. We always enjoy picking his brain. You can follow him on Twitter at Gordon G. Chang. Gordon, it's always good to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time today, as always. Thank you so much, Guy. And thank you for this opportunity to talk to your audience. It's such a consequential moment, not only for the Chinese people, but for us. Oh, I completely agree, which is why we booked the segment. I know we're right heading up to an American election, and we're all focused inward, understandably so. We're two weeks and a day until Election Day, but this is a short, medium, and long-term challenge for the United States of America, and we don't want to take our eye off the ball here on the China question, the China challenge at all, and which is why we love checking in with Gordon Chang on a regular basis. Gordon, we do appreciate it. Final hour of The Guy Benson Show is coming up next. Juan Williams here in studio. We might uh, disagree on one or two things, just a guess, and we'll get to that straight ahead. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Happy hour here on The Guy Benson Show from Washington, D.C. Thanks for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is free every single day. Catch me tonight on Special Report. I'll be on the panel in the 6 p.m. hour toward the end of that hour on Fox News Channel with Brett Bayer and company. 
This hour is sponsored by The Finish Long Drink. Delicious, refreshing, expanding. Check it out if you're 21 plus only. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly. That's TheLongDrink.com. And here with me in studio is Juan Williams, Fox News analyst, columnist at The Hill, author of multiple best-selling books. Juan, it is very good to see you. My pleasure. I haven't seen you in a while. You're looking good. Then likewise. Thank you. Any big Halloween plans, Juan? You know, I had I just had a grandson last week. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. So, uh, yes, uh, I now have five grandchildren, and I think for a granddad, you can't you can't be a good granddad in America unless you're pro-Halloween. Go kids, <laughs> go costumes, and get that candy out. What's the age range then from brand new infant up to? Twelve. Twelve. This okay. is a 12-year-old who is sprouting. You know, a boy hits 12, and you start to think, that guy's taller than his mom. <laughs> yeah, it, it all of a sudden happens, right? And happens. The height shoots up, the voice goes down, yeah. and it's off to the races. So you can do some advanced candy shopping. Are you a big trick-or-treat guy? Well, it's uh, my wife. Okay. Uh, and yes, boy, I can tell you that the pantry is full of Snickers okay. and uh, uh, peanut butter cups. Ooh, those are both two of my favorites. I'm not a big candy person, but if I had to pick some, those, those are near good. the top of the list. Yeah. Now, are you going with the fun size? Or the yes. F- okay, that's fair. Yeah. Sometimes people go with the full size, and those houses are celebrated amongst the children. I just don't know if I want my house. It's too much pressure to Develop, <laughs> develop a reputation for being a full-size candy household. Well, here's the thing that I notice uh, is that as I drive around the Washington metropolitan area, Halloween now is a big, big deal. People decorating their houses magnificently. Mm-hmm. I, I see huge skeletons. I see massive spiders. I see video presentations on the outside of houses. I've not, this was not the case when I was a little boy. It's a whole thing. It's a big deal. Oh, yeah. It's been that way for a while. We don't really do that as much. We have a Halloween-themed welcome mat uh-huh. at the front door, and then we have some pumpkins and mums, which is more autumnal than Halloween-specific. We'll give out candy. Right. What is it, next Monday? Yeah. That's about it, though. I, I'm a Thanksgiving guy. You know what I've also noticed, Guy, is that because of, I don't know, maybe people are concerned, there are more private Halloween gatherings. In my neighborhood, they're doing an alley where they will have the kids march along and give out candy. and But it's not just you have to go house to house. Now it's like, you know, we're controlling this environment for the children. And I see that at schools, too. You know, the schools have the costume parades and the little celebrations. So that's another little change. You know, you get older and you think, boy, something like Halloween will never change. Yes, Halloween yeah. is a much bigger celebration for adults, much bigger for house decorations, and much more about security of the kids. I think that those are accurate observations. I do also have to ask you, Juan, since we are here in October, we'll talk about baseball just briefly. <laughs> okay. The World Series is set, the Phillies and the Astros. I'm a Yankees fan. I predicted the Astros would win that series in right. six games. Took them four. Right. Yankees were just pitiful, couldn't hit, striking out constantly. Some bad injuries, but they would have lost even with, I think, a non-depleted roster. The Astros just marching again to a World Series. The Phillies have to be a team that you don't like very much as a Nats fan with Bryce Harper. Are you rooting for Houston in the World Series, or are you just kind of, like, ambivalent? I'm rooting for Dusty Baker, uh, who was manager of the Nationals for a little bit, but he's been known as manager of the Giants and other teams. And Dusty's never won a World Series, and he's in his mid-70s. He's come close. Yeah, but he's in his mid—my point, mid-70s, never gotten the big trophy. And I just think it'd be sweet. But on the other hand, you are so right. I think of 
the Astros is a bunch of cheaters. That's correct. Yep. <laughs> Look at you, Guy yep. Benson. By the way, listeners who cannot see you don't know that Guy Benson looked rather distraught as he was introducing this topic of baseball. And I was thinking, why is he looking like that? And it cursed me. Wait a minute. You're a Yankee fan. That's right. You just went through a rough weekend. Oh, yeah. I mean, swept. Clean sweep. And again, the cheating stuff was a number of years ago. It has no. left a very bad taste. I still say cheaters when they show up, and I go to, I go to sometimes see them in Baltimore, but also here in D.C. But I always, I'm always chanting cheaters, oh, yeah. che- oh, I mean, especially they, Altuve. They oh, 100%. But they also just beat down the Yankees. Didn't need any cheating. They're just no, a lot better. They're a better team. And so, I mean, there's no question about that. And I really, it is hard for me to root for any Philadelphia sports ever. Sorry, Philly listeners. It's just true. But I feel like I kind of have to do it. I'll be rooting begrudgingly well, for the Phils. The interest might be different for you as a Nats fan. Now, Juan, this is a tough transition, but just outside Nats Park yesterday, there was a homicide, a fatal shooting, yes. four armed carjackings overnight in this neck of the woods in the DMV area. This is a theme not just in D.C., in a lot of major cities across the country, crime. Right. We're seeing finally in New York, the governor there is – Losing her lead, at least the lead has been eroding now, and she's losing, I think, I think she's still slightly ahead, but she's losing ground because of crime. Finally, over the weekend, she came out with some comments about crime and some initiatives on the issue of crime. I know for a lot of folks, this is a partisan issue. A few Republicans is better on the issue than Democrats or what have you. You can talk about it that way if you want to, the the, the politics of it, but also just, I think, the disturbing nature of not feeling safe or feeling significantly less safe in a lot of major cities in this country and surrounding areas, that is something on the minds of many Americans heading into the polls. But even when the election's over, it's going to be lingering, I think, these worries. Yeah. So I think it's a legitimate worry. It's a legitimate concern. I mean, what we've seen in the last year, according to the federal statistics, is actually crime has gone down. But what we're seeing is homicides go up. And I would say that the most upsetting part to me is, look, we have a lot of post-pandemic people, especially young people, and I think especially young men who are, you know, I don't, I think they feel like they've lost their way or a lot, they're not in school. They just, and and they're doing desperate things and they do it to people like you and me. Uh, So I do not feel as safe as I did before the pandemic. I think there's a part of our population that's just out there. Now, the politics, you suggested, well, what about Zeldin? What about Hochul? I think it's the reason Zeldin is hammering that crime issue. Right. And I think that there are people who are responding to it. But again, I think there's a little bit of Halloween fright involved. And I think that Hochul can, you know, respond, obviously, in the mind of the electorate when you talk about the increase in the number of guns available, things like that. Uh, people tend to blame Republicans. And I think you're going to see the Democrats say, hey, wait a second, who puts more guns on the streets, Democrats or Republicans? The Republican response, who was, whose party was the first associated with defund the police and all that? So you're going to see yeah. that political dynamic. Uh, but, you know, the fact Republicans is— Republicans are up double digits on the question, though, in polling. They are. I, that's why I say it. So, you know, to me, I don't think you can get away with it. I think it's the reason Zeldin's doing better. And it took her a while to finally recalibrate and say, maybe I shouldn't run every ad on January 6th in abortion. He's hitting me on this thing. And she was just kind of like, you know, n- you know, see no evil, hear no evil until the polls got into the single digits. And all of a sudden it's like, all right, break glass, do something. Right. Because I think that from the Democrats perspective, Hochul's perspective, they don't. I mean, it's like Biden. Biden's a moderate. He's not. 
he's not pro who's pro crime in America. I don't know, but clearly you're right. It's working for Republicans. Yeah, not sure if many Americans would agree that President Biden is presiding over a moderate agenda administration. But we've got a break. One when we come back, I want to turn to the economy. A statement from a prominent Democrat just a few days ago. Get your reaction and get into all of that as soon as we return. Juan Williams, my guest here in studio on The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Juan Williams, my guest here in studio on The Guy Benson Show. I do want to ask you on the issue of inflation, which is the other really big one out there. Jim Clyburn, the number three House Democrat on MSNBC last week, made what I thought was a pretty astounding admission talking about all the spending that the Democrats have done, particularly those two trillion dollars at the start of the Biden administration. And he was asked about inflation. Clyburn said this in cut seven. Well, let me make it very clear. All of us are concerned about these rising costs. And all of us knew this would be the case uh, when we put in place this recovery program. Anytime you put more money uh, into uh, the economy, uh, prices uh, tend to rise. All of us knew this would be the case on the recovery program being inflationary. I hadn't really heard a lot of Democrats admitting that until just now. And I wonder what you make of that comment. I think we had a pandemic. I think that we had to do something to keep small businesses in America floating. Uh, we had to do something for people, especially service workers, uh, you know, people like we security. We spent trillions we did. during the pandemic. I don't think there's any question. And, of course, when it came to things like uh, infrastructure, we had bipartisan, to some extent, bipartisan support for that funding. The question then becomes, well, what about something like Build Back Better, the last tranche of spending from the Democrats? That clearly seems to be the Republican point. Oh, you spent too much. Yes, you had to spend money to help us during the pandemic, but now you spent too much. And I think, you know what, Democrats have not come out and said, you know what, we're proud of that money. It's lowering the cost of prescription drugs in this country. We're doing something here to help people in terms of schools, in terms of child care tax credits. We think this is important for America. The other point to be made on this is when you look at spending and right now you say, oh, is it in fact tied to Biden administration policies? And that's what Republicans are doing. You'd say, oh, so it must be an American problem. Answer, no, it's a global problem. Look at what Liz Truss just went through in Britain. She's pursuing tax cuts for the rich along the Trumpian lines. And what did it do? It caused hyperinflation. But inflation throughout Western Europe is higher than it is here. The oh. United States has the best economy in the world. This dollar is stronger than the euro or the pound. But somehow that's lost. Well, I'm not sure that Americans would agree that we have the best economy right now in the world or that it's strong as hell, which is what the president called well, how it. Well, how do you argue with that? I don't well, get it. Well, we have one of the highest inflation rates in the world. I mean, you mentioned a few that are higher than no, us. No, Western Europe. In other words, other first world economies. There are others that have better inflation than we do and have for a while. And I look, don't. you don't have to argue with me. You can argue with Larry Summers and Steve Ratner and a number of these Democratic economists who say the $2 trillion of spending well, I don't see them was... putting their money over there. They're putting money in the American. That's why the stock but market I think, goes no, up long term, long term, I'd rather be here and have my money here. Correct. There's no question about that. It's a resilient economy. We are a great country. We have strong workers and all of that. I'm saying the painful inflation and the cost of things going up, according to Democratic economists, is worse than it should be or could be because of extra wasteful spending that the Democrats did all on their own. I think that's a pretty clean political hit for the Republicans. And whether you agree or not, you seem not to agree. No, but you said it's a double digit increase. Here's where I agree with you said extra spending. And I would say, yes, it was extra spending. 
I would also say not wasteful. And that was the other word you used. And I don't think it's wasteful to keep us not only afloat during a pandemic, but to say we need to rebuild our infrastructure, as some, some Republicans agree. But then where Republicans don't agree is, you know what, the social safety net in our country does need to be strengthened, especially when you think back to, wait a second, the big the president who increased the deficit the most in American history was Donald Trump. Oh, yeah. And that was, of course, partially his fault and the Republicans okay. spending too much. And that, what was but that for? Cutting, was, cutting taxes for the rich. Well, that wasn't a big driver of the deficit and debt. The, the economy really grew and was, was on steroids. The economy was cooking with gas before the pandemic hit. Trillions of dollars of bipartisan spending during the pandemic. The argument isn't so much about that because both parties were on board for that. For better or for worse, they did that together. It was after the Democrats took control, they spent $2 trillion on the so-called rescue plan that the Democratic economists are saying was hugely inflationary. One guy called it the original sin of this inflation problem. And then there was the Inflation Reduction Act, which just happened a couple months ago, hundreds of billions more in spending. I think those are the two big ones. That Republicans objected to and gave zero votes toward, and they certainly have had at least some impact on the inflation that Americans are feeling every day. That's the case Republicans are prosecuting against Democrats politically, and just like on crime, they've got a double-digit lead on that question among voters. I don't think there's any question the messaging is effective for Republicans. It's the number one concern of voters in terms of the economic issue. Right. Uh, But, you know, it's just like the crime issue we were discussing a moment ago. Out in Oklahoma, you see the governor Republican Stitt says, oh, you know what? What about crime in those big cities? Los Angeles, New York. And then her, his opponent says, uh, excuse me, governor, crime is higher here in Oklahoma than it is in those blue states. And he says, oh, can't be true in the audience. But, but it's true. And the numbers back her up. But again, that's what happens. I think we're in politically polarized times and the messaging is effective without a doubt. But I just think it's out of touch with the reality. Well, I, I think if you look at the crime numbers, you can go blue state versus red state. I think you have to look at the city, who's running the cities, what are the policies in those in those cities. And I think you're seeing in Democrat-run cities, the crime's a lot worse than it is out in Republican-led That's jurisdictions. It is one. It That's is not true. Over, overwhelmingly the numbers, overall I, I, I'm very interested in this point because you know what is true? Is that you see prosecutors, especially the Democratic prosecutors. I think of the top 20, I just saw the stat the other day, of the top 20 cities in America with the worst crime, 19 of them are run by Democrats. Wait, how about cities with the worst rate of violent crime? You know what? Republicans and Democrats. You have to throw in Republican-run cities and states. Like what? What's a Republican-run city that's over? I don't have it all in my mind. I didn't prepare for that, but I'm just going to tell you right now. If you look at city, I'm trying because I have gone over this before. But in a place like Oklahoma, in places like Florida, with Republican governor, Republican mayors, you still see high rates of crime. I think that Texas out of control. What are you talking about? Well, but if you look at where the crime is in Texas, it's mostly in the big cities, and those are run by Democrats. No, that's even where in Texas. most of the people are, but that's not where most of the crime is. It it's a matter of proportion. It absolutely is. Look at Houston. Okay. Juan, I mean, we can we can go into the numbers for sure. These are blue states, blue cities. I'm not saying the Democrats are completely responsible for all the crime and that there's no crime where Republicans are, and it's only because of the Democrats. I think, at least at the margins, when you're arguing with the American people and you're having a contest of ideas, you have one party that's in control of the government right now, and people look and they see crime waves, viral videos, homicides going up. They see inflation way up. The cost of almost everything is up compared to what it was a few years ago. It's hard for the Democrats to say, oh, that's not us. It's really them. 
I think it is maybe an oversimplification to blame it all on the Democrats, but I think weak on crime policies are unhelpful in a number of these big cities where it's a problem. And the overspending has been part of the problem on inflation. That's a little bit more nuanced, but when you boil it down to pure political messaging, I think the Republicans obviously have some pretty strong ammo right now. I think the ammo on abortion uh, remains, and I think that you're going to see it. I don't think that this is a case that that has, issue has gone away. I think the ammo on something like the January 6th insurrection and Donald Trump is still there, and a lot of people feel, in fact, across party lines, that you know the threat to democracy is very real. I think when you ask people uh, about whether or not they think that guns, there are too many guns in this country, and that is a key contributing factor to crime, they'll say, yes, of course. And guess what? Republicans are the ones who are associated with the proliferation of guns in our society. Well, look, if it comes down to abortion, guns, and January 6th on November the 8th, Democrats might have a decent night. If it comes down to crime, inflation, the economy, I think they're in trouble. Well, and we'll see. Well, I think if it comes down to history, history typically punishes the party in power yeah. in a midterm, right? Especially with an unpopular president, well, especially with the dissatisfaction in the country as high as it is. So. Right. So what are we seeing right now in the Fox numbers, in Fox power rankings? We see Republicans picking up like 15 to 20 seats in the House. Looks like Democrats hold on to the Senate, but it's not for sure. Yeah, 50-50. Uh, but you know what? Is that a red wave? I don't think so. We'll see. Right. We'll see how big the wave gets. I think there'll be something of a wave. Whether it's a little one or a monster one, we are two weeks out, two weeks in a day. So we won't have to be left in suspense much longer. Juan Williams, our guest here in studio, Fox News analyst, columnist at The Hill, author of multiple best-selling books, including most recently, What the Hell Do You Have to Lose? Juan, frequently disagree. Always good to see you. It's always a good conversation. Thank you, guys. You bet. And The Guy Benson Show is back right after this. Talking about the issues you care about, Guy Benson. It is the happy hour here on The Guy Benson Show from Washington, D.C. Earlier in today's program, I talked a lot about the border crisis because there were some new numbers that came out on Friday night, a total news dump heading into the weekend that the Biden administration didn't want America to really know about or think about, so we led with it today. In case you missed it, here's a taste of how we open today's show. Listen, what I've decided to do, however, is open with an issue that I am confident that the Biden administration does not want us to talk about. Why am I so confident? Because on Friday night around 11 p.m. Eastern, some people probably already in bed at that point, some people perhaps including the producer of this show, several drinks deep at that point, the American people are not exactly tuned into the news at 11 p.m. Eastern time on a Friday night which is where the Friday news dump political strategy comes into play. It is not unusual, and it is absolutely bipartisan. It's a staple of our politics. If you want to put out some news that you would prefer to get lost in the shuffle, do it on a Friday afternoon. This one was buried even deeper, late into the night. And what was that news? A late-night dump from Team Biden on the border crisis. So I face the decision, do I talk about this and bury it deeper into the show because I want to start with other things related to the election? Or do I subvert exactly the cynical calculation set up here by Team Biden, which is to sort of try to pretend like by Monday afternoon or Monday, it's already old news. Oh, that came out on Friday, guy. 
I'm not falling for that. We're starting with it here. We are leading with this issue because they are trying to force people to avert their eyes from it. And we're not going to play along. We got the September numbers and then the fiscal year close numbers on the border crisis late Friday night, and they were terrible. My colleague at Town Hall tweeted about the late night drop close to 11 p.m. Eastern time. Customs and Border Patrol finally released, and this comes from, of course, the executive branch of the government, finally released the number of encounters at the border, southern border, in September, more than 227,000. And for all of fiscal year 2022, we have the final number, a little over 2.3 million apprehensions. And that, of course, does not include any of the gotaways, known or unknown. The estimate for known gotaways since Biden took office is a million. A million known gotaways. And the 2.3 million encounters last fiscal uh, fiscal year, that's just over the course of 12 months and does not include any of those gotaways. Our colleague Bill Malugin also tweeted late on Friday night about this. He said, breaking in a blatant Friday late night news dump, CBP has released the September border numbers. Here's the exact statistic. 227,547 migrant encounters at the southern border last month. That is the highest September in the history of the Department of Homeland Security. Fiscal year 22 ended with 2,378,944 encounters, also the highest ever, and doesn't include gotaways. Malugin offered some more context Please listen to this. I know that there are people who only want to talk about this issue like, oh, it's some weird right-wing obsession. And they only get dragooned into discussing it if they feel like there's an opportunity to score political points and to attack Republicans or smear border frontline agents, which is what we also saw last year. This is an ongoing crisis At the border, it is completely unacceptable and it is reaching historic levels that are just jaw dropping. It is totally and completely unsustainable. So in 2019, September 2019, there was a bit of a surge at the southern border under Trump. Right. And it's like, okay, look at this. And the Trump people got their act together, put a number of policies in place that were quite successful and got control, operational control, overwhelmingly of the southern border. Almost all of that was immediately broomed aside by the Biden people for political reasons. In September of 19, so three years ago, the surge that happened under Trump was just over 52,000 encounters at the border that month. And then September, fast forward to September of this year, it was nearly 228,000, more than quadruple. They won't even call it a crisis. They call it a challenge. They ignore questions about it. They talk about comprehensive reform and a path to citizenship, and they try to blame Republicans. That's their answer to this. You take a bad month from Trump where they were able to actually improve the policy and improve the outcomes. You quadruple it, and that's 
still less than where we are right now with the brand-new September numbers dribbling out on a Friday night with people asleep or out at the bar with friends. Now, here's another, another statistic that I want to bring to your attention that Malugin also highlighted. Last month alone, September 2022, there were 20 arrests of known or suspected terrorists from the FBI terror watch list at the southwest border. One month, 20 arrests of people on the terrorism watch list of the FBI. So this is an escalating phenomenon. All in, fiscal year 2022 ends with 98 terror watch list arrests at the border. Almost 100. And these are people that were caught, that we know of. And sometimes I feel like a broken record, and yet it needs to be said over and over again, especially because there's a conspiracy of silence about this in much of the rest of the press. Have you seen this reported anywhere other than right-leaning media or Fox News from Bill Malugin? Like maybe a tiny mention here or there, and then we just move right on. Oh, yeah, 228,000 people at the border, 2.3 million apprehensions, a million got away since Biden took office, 20 on the terrorist watch list. I guarantee you they don't mention that. 20 last month alone, 98 in fiscal year 2022. And you might say, well, this is fear-mongering. That's such a small number compared to the millions who entered the country, 98 out of millions. First of all, the millions is the problem. The denominator is the problem. The numerator is just one part of the problem in this part of the that full monologue and all of today's show, including our guests and everything in between, available online for free on our podcast, GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back the home stretch, a game that is taking America by storm. It isn't new, but it is gaining in popularity. I've heard of it. I've never played it. We'll discuss amongst our team straight ahead. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show. See you tonight. On Special Report around 645 Eastern, Fox News Channel. I'll be on the panel. You can also catch all of today's show in its entirety for free on demand on our podcast, which publishes shortly after the show is over, GuyBensonShow.com. If you're listening on the broadcast, that was a little bit of music from Carly Rae Jepsen. Her new album is out. And I think maybe my favorite song on it is Talking to Yourself, which is what we just played. I know everyone was talking about the Taylor Swift album, which we listened to, I will note, on Friday on our drive. And we talked about this during the home stretch last week. It's fine. A couple songs that I didn't mind. A couple songs that were kind of catchy. The rest of it was kind of ambient noise, kind of a vibe in the background. I'm not going crazy over it like a lot of people are. It's fine. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm not a huge Swifty or anti-Swifty. I'm kind of just like... I like certain songs or I don't. I do like Carly Rae Jepsen, as we've established here on the show. The song that we just sampled briefly on the bumper song is one that I enjoy, although apparently producer Christine doesn't like it. And once again, I just have to say that Christine's taste in most things, highly suspect. Christine, I can't believe that you were this hostile to Carly Rae Jepsen. 
I don't, I don't think, okay, you guys spent all last week saying I needed some sort of intervention of vacuums, drinking, whatever. I think we need to start an intervention on you because I'm not sure what's happening, but all of a sudden you're like, you know, popping up with these Carly Rae Jepsen songs in the past couple months and we just need to stop it. We need to calm it down, let no, her go good away. And- There's no need for an intervention. This is what people who really need interventions do, right? They see the intervention coming. They start lashing out. They try to run away. They try to deflect. They try to blame someone else. They're like, well, you actually need the intervention. Because there's two pop songs that you like that are wrong. I might have spent thousands of dollars on vacuum cleaners and keep throwing them away for no reason, but you're the problem with your pop music tastes. No, we're not going to have that here. And Carly Rae Jepsen, it's not like she's vaulted into my top echelon of favorite artists, but in terms of putting out some pop music bangers, I will take her latest body of work pound for pound over Taylor Swift's. Are you a Taylor Swift person, Christine? I am. I, I mean, I'm not like, I guess, a Swifty, you would say. I, I enjoy. You and I, I, I think, like the same songs. I That Trouble song I love. That's a bop. That's a good yeah, one. Yeah, but that's, I mean, years ago at this point. That's her best song ever, I think. And that came out, I would guess, I would estimate maybe a decade ago. That's it's not her best song. What's her best song? Style. That is like my all-time favorite, favorite song. Christine, I just want to read a quote to you and see what you have to say about it. This quote is from Phil Collins. Okay, your favorite of all time, right? Love him. He said, quote, Carly Rae Jepsen is a pop music icon, vastly underrated, and better than most people out there on the scene today. End quote. Do you agree or disagree? Wait a second. Did you just make that up? I did. (laughs) I knew it. You just can't make things up. Has completely fabricated a quote from Phil Collins to see if I could trick you into maybe stampeding onto the bandwagon if you thought that Phil was a part of it. I knew. I knew my Phil would never say something like that. But I just want to point out here, I'm not the only one that thinks this Carly Rae Jepsen love that you have or newfound love is is sort of strange. Dan, I mean, feel free to jump in whenever. Yeah, I mean, I'm not the biggest fan of Carly Rae Jepsen. I I usually love your music taste guy, I have to say that. Mm -hmm. But I think she was kind of brought down because of Call Me Maybe was like so bubblegummy pop that I think anything after that. Yeah, and overplayed. And I think after that was really tough for her to kind of break out from. Yeah, but I mean, it's not her fault that she had a mega hit that you know, got played way too much, and then everyone assumes she was a one-hit wonder. When she's not, she's had other songs that have done well. You know that Cut to the Feeling is my favorite of her songs. That wasn't really a huge radio hit. And this new one, Talking to Yourself, I think has a very catchy chorus. And when she put on a show that I went to go see, we're now rehashing what, what I went, what, a few weeks ago to this show, I thought she put on a fun, good show. I don't love her. I just think she's good. And I also will not be lectured to. About musical taste or catchy music by a fan of Nickelback, but, but, which is what you are. But that's that. Uh, that's my point exactly. You should understand how I feel because Nickelback came out with "Remind Me" and it was just overplayed. And I think that's where you know the hate started coming. But they he also have... has a very annoying voice. No, oh, I love that voice. What do you? Okay, we're done. I'm done. This is what you're done over? You can't, like, summon the words to defend Nickelback? I'm not surprised. It's it's just— I would run away from this conversation, too. 
I just, I feel like it's your way or the highway. What do you think? This is the Guy Benson show only? <laughs> I'm not saying that you can't like Nickelback. It just makes me question your taste in everything, along with many of the other things that you do, right? Like, you would crank some Nickelback while sitting on a beach chair among your Christmas inflatables on November 2nd and be like, this is living my best life. And I just don't agree. I I just feel like we fundamentally have some disagreements on some of this stuff, and that's fine. I just won't take shade on pop music from someone with your track record. It's like we're in a debate ahead of the mid. Like my opponent, ladies and gentlemen, cannot defend her own record, which is why she continues to lie about mine, right? That's what's happening here. I mean, I I get it. We could move on, but I just want to say, like, at the end of the day, sometimes best friends don't have to like everything the same. So I get it. And you'd be like, let's go to the Nickelback concert, and we can stop at my favorite pizzeria, Domino's, afterwards for some pineapple. And you'd be like, this is great. What a fabulous Friday night. And I would say, you know, I think I would prefer to do something else. Would you go to a Carly Rae Jepsen concert if Nickelback was opening with Christine? But you had to sit through Nickelback to get to Carly Rae Jepsen. No, because I would meet her there. I'd pay for the tickets, let her get liquored up, enjoy her Nickelback, show up for Carly Rae, and then she would have enough, you know, alcohol in the old bloodstream to then listen to Carly Rae with new ears and watch with new eyes and maybe understand the error of her ways. By the way, the topic that we're supposed to be talking about is pickleball, which is this like mini tennis game with, what is it, like ping pong paddles and a wiffle ball, something like that, and it's kind of like tennis. That was our topic here. And we're like almost done with this segment. We're eight minutes deep into another stupid conversation about Canadian music stars or, you know, put stars in quotes. Yeah, no, I could bring this all back on track. I'm just going to say this to you. You know, sure, pickleball sounds fun. I think we should all do it. Nickelback's great. You seem to think Carly's great. But here, there's something bigger we need to talk about, and this is going to just bring us back on track. You ready, Guy? Oh, no. I just want you to know today is October 24th. There's only two months left until Christmas Eve. I'm just going to put it out there. I don't want to freak people out because I'm starting to get anxiety. But I'm just letting everybody know. We can end here. You have two months, ladies and gentlemen, until Christmas Eve. I'm more concerned about two weeks until the midterm elections. That's sort of top of mind, so to speak, for me. And then, unless I'm mistaken, today's October 24th, yes? Well, as I scroll ahead of my calendar, November 24th, one month from now, is Thanksgiving the most important holiday, my favorite holiday, that also ushers in the Christmas season and allows us to start to enjoy Christmas after Thanksgiving. So, yes, Christmas is looming, and I do love Christmas, but I like Thanksgiving as the lead into Christmas, and we're a month out from that, two weeks and a day out from the midterm elections. That's our focus here, despite a wildly unfocused home stretch segment where we barely even gave lip service to the actual topic of pickleball, how it's, I guess, exploding in popularity and so on and so forth. You can, I guess the New York Times wrote about it. You can go look that up if you want to. Wyatt played some pickleball at our block party, Blocktoberfest, that he was invited to, and other members of the team were unable to make. I'll just also point that out. Although it seems like everyone is in for the Christmas party, which comes in between Thanksgiving and Christmas. 
This has been a mess. This has been an absolute train wreck of a segment. And now we're out of time. We don't even have time to bring it really back on the rails. Congratulations, Nickelback. You did this. And the Guy Benson Show back here tomorrow. Same time, same place. See you on Special Report on the News Channel coming up. Have a great night. Look at this photograph. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.